Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Fran stands. it's great to have you back here. It's great to have another week. Before we begin the episode, I'd like to invite you to think about potential guests for the show. So if you know anyone who'd be willing to speak anonymously or not about their child going through a broken engagement. So we're looking for a parent's perspective here, as well as a parent's perspective of a survivor of child sexual abuse. We have other exciting topics coming out as well. However, I'm sure it's going to be much easier to find guests for those topics. So I will start with these. Next, I want to thank you for listening to last week's episode. I've heard from many of you that after they actually listened to it, they realized how controversial and relatable this topic of kosher and hashgacha and what goes into all of that is actually related to your everyday life. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, go back and listen to last week's episode. Our next thing before we start the show, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to this podcast. This way you never miss an episode. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Please share this podcast with other people you think may enjoy the show. The show has been growing thanks to you. So thank you so much. And of course, I am Francisca, a podcast success launch coach. So if you or anyone you know is looking or thinking of launching a podcast, please send them my way so I can help them launch professionally with ease and in just one day. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and stick around until the end to see what's coming out next week. Welcome back, Fran Stans, to the Francisca Show podcast. I'm so excited about today's episode. It was inspired by a BuzzFeed article that popped onto my Facebook profile, and it's titled, Parents Who Don't Want Their Kids Are Sharing Their Secrets, Regrets, and It's Eye-Opening, with a tagline, you hate them and you hate yourself for hating them. So that's pretty strong, but it got me thinking enough to post and Our kind network has recommended our guest today, and I'm so excited to introduce her to you today. Her name is Igeli Osavsky, living in Muncie, a licensed clinical social worker, registered play therapy supervisor, an EMDR consultant, someone who runs a parenting course, both offline and online, and also Jewish from woman who lives in Muncie with a Hamish slash Hasidish background. So (laughs) we have a very powerful combination, and this is someone who's going to talk about and validate that this exists in the firm community. Yes, firm people are humans too. And we have a couple of months back have addressed the concept of birth control on this episode. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to it. It was amazing. However, in our culture, in our religion, having children is not necessarily a choice or something that We have agency around just not building a family. It's something that's ingrained in us. It's culturally expected and many people want to do it. However, 
many families push their boundaries and have kids when they're not ready, or they expand and grow their families when it's not a good time for them. And that can manifest itself in negative relationships and emotional disconnect from their children. And I'd like to use today's episode to talk about those issues. So welcome to the show, Gelly. So nice to have you. Yes, I'm excited to be here. And you know what? It is one of those topics that's hard to talk about. I had done an Instagram live with Joma about personal safety, and we were careful not to use the word sexual abuse, thinking that it would be a little hard for parents. And this is it. Somebody's got to do the talking. But my husband did say, are you sure you want to talk about this? And I was like, look, if people, this is a topic that does come up. Some people speak about it. Some people don't. But in my work, it does kind of, you know, it finds its way in there. Yes. Go ahead. Ask your question. My first question is, does this really exist? Do you have patients, clients who show up at your door, book a session and talk to you about emotional negative feelings and disconnect and just not able to connect with their children? Yeah, I there may have been one or two women that walked in or men, you know, dads. And that said, you know, hey, we we didn't, we weren't expecting to get pregnant, but we did. And this and this is our issue. More how it comes out is when I do my assessment, you know, why you're here, your kid's been struggling with anger, anxiety, you're overwhelmed, you're feeling like torn with a work-life balance, there's an abuse issue, there's divorce, right? And then we address the issue, I get background information. And as a child therapist, I'm always going back to the beginning. So what was it like during your pregnancy? Bruh. You know, the first few months of your child's life and on from there. And it is always shocking to me what I hear. I'm always surprised. So I have come to learn that there's no one story. Many times people say I was using birth control but it didn't work. Other times people will say, I was going through a really hard time in my marriage and I just got pregnant. Some people will say, I was really, really anxious during this pregnancy. I was dealing with a parent's illness, bad timing. So you hear all kinds of stories and then you'll hear someone say, like you said, it's sort of expected that you want to have kids. But some people will say, I'm not, I'm actually not a kid person, but I wanted to do the right thing. And I, I want children. So I'm going to map it out and I'm going to have those kids and I'm going to do it. But if we don't resolve that story, it sort of sits in the DNA of the child and they, they pick it up. You know, the children, the, the story is there. It's in the subconscious. Sometimes it's in the conscious level as well. So what you're saying is there's a manifestation of behavioral issues or just communication issues and the parent and child are not meshing well together and they come to you for help because it seems like the child needs extra support. And then it can be anything, right? What do you mean? It could be anything. It could be any reason that somebody would come in for therapy. But I would say most times it's not the parent coming in and saying, 
I really wasn't ready to have a kid. Usually it's a presenting problem. And then it'll come out because I'm asking the question. What are some other examples of parent issues that come up? Mothers don't know how to deal with children who are acting out. That's a very big one. And sometimes we think about acting out kids as teenagers, you know, the crisis. But it's some kids at five years old are being kicked out of school. And you'd be shocked. It happens. Some kids, they're, you know, they're sitting in detention. They're, the teachers are calling every single night and the parents are throwing up their hands and going, I don't know. I am not equipped. Or a lot of mothers walk in and say, I just don't feel supported in my marriage. And mothers and fathers will walk in and both the mother and father will say, I went through sexual abuse as a kid. And now I'm worried about my kid. How do I protect them? So I think parents come in because sometimes their own issues are making them worried about raising kids. And sometimes there's something actually going on. It's disrupting the family and it's causing so much chaos that they're like, I don't know, I I need outside help. So all kinds of things. Yeah. Can we just throw in to acknowledge, I remember I read this data research article in the Jewish Action. It came out at the beginning or later on in COVID. I think Matthew Williams is his name. And it was the most validating thing I've ever read (laughs) since COVID. It said that they did research to see which demographics needed the most support through COVID. And their natural assumption when they were allocating funds was to help the elderly, the disabled, And after doing research and pulling the data, the first, the number one criteria were single parent households. Number two was double parent households with little kids. That was the criteria, the little kids. And I felt like, (laughs) thank you, because it felt, and we are a two parent household. It, It just was the hardest thing. I still feel like I am dealing with post COVID stress disorder every time they shut school down for COVID or anything else. And I go into this, are we going to be stuck in our houses with no help for the next who knows how long? So how has COVID affected parents already dealing with hard relationships or behavioral issues with their children? I think COVID has just amplified whatever was going on. So if you were struggling with your kid, But then you counted on, okay, I got them on the bus in the morning. They went out for six, eight hours, depending on their age. And I had some time for self-care. I had a life, quote unquote. I went to work, whether it was part-time or full-time. My kid came home and then I had had four hours. Okay, I could do four hours. And now it was 24-hour round-the-clock here. And the research has really spoken to the fact that there's a mental health crisis with kids as a result of COVID. I really see it. And the anxiety, the chaos, the the tantrums, the being bored, all of that really, if there was a problem, it went from, we had the zero to 10 scale with zeros, no problem at all. Five is the midpoint and 10 parents went to a 20 and a 30. And I think also the other pieces, and this was the joke that was going around during COVID, and I absolutely, it bothered me so much. I wrote it down. It, people were saying here that couples were being forced to spend time together. 
and that it wasn't good for the marriage. And I really, it broke my heart because I was like, one minute, isn't that what we want, right? So too much of a good thing can be too much. Too much of a bad thing can be too much. And then it was just one big, crazy, chaotic time. And if you weren't in denial, and I want to really say this because many wonderful people, intelligent people really went into denial and were like, okay, yeah, but it's not, it's not going to happen to me. Well, yeah, not my school. Yeah. No. And then, and then it happened to them. And I had my own COVID story. I nearly lost my life during COVID 19 months ago. And luckily here I am to tell the tale. I had wow. pregnancy induced lupus 23 years ago, 24, my daughter's 23. What is that? It just happened due to the pregnancy. It was my second child of two children. And we always wanted a big family, but this is what we were given. Something was wrong with my blood work. And they sent me to experts. And first they said it was a connective tissue disorder. I was 25, 26. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, right. And then when my daughter was born, we had to make sure she didn't have any heart defects. And then I had, it's a constellation of symptoms. It's a systemic disorder that can affect on a really bad level, heart, kidneys, lungs, blood, anything, or it's just for me, most of my life, it's been just if I get a virus, it'll knock me out for weeks on end. But as I got older, they were watching my lungs. And when COVID hit, my lungs were functioning at 65%. So it was like a smash and a bang. And I was semi-conscious for months. But my doctor just said, don't go to the hospital, take 3000 milligrams of Tylenol a day. And I'm like, I can't breathe. And nobody knows what to do. Hatsala wasn't even activated. Nobody knew anything. With Hashem's help, I survived from here. And that was my story. Just I was in just a really, really long recuperation process, long haul of symptoms, got breakthrough COVID. <laughs> A month ago. So I've been there. I've done it all. And it's it's really been a big partial for me, a big story in my life. And I've had to work on myself as a mom, a daughter, a sibling to really let go of unhelpful feelings, to really see people as good people. Some people are, do the right thing, in my opinion. Some people don't. And really, we don't want to disconnect. So I feel like I want to say that because COVID, COVID not only turned our families upside down, but it pitted people against each other because people started feeling like friends, family, neighbors, whoever were like out to get them and they were going to kill them. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember having this idea. I, I got the you are grown up memo because it was like Pesach's coming or whatever else was coming up. You are on your own. No one is coddling you. No one's inviting you into their house and to say they're going to take care of you. Right now, you're the adults in yes. your situation. Your kids need you. And when your kids have COVID, you're going to have to hug them and kiss them and take care of them. And unless people listening who, who quarantine their kids and isolate their kids, we've had that too. But yeah, I can't. I, I'm just hearing your story. Wow. 
it's it's an honor to be speaking with you today, really. Oh, thank you. I, I believe I survived for a reason. And it's catapulting me into a world where I'm no longer in my, like, I'll be in my office, but I want to take my knowledge. I want to share. I want to answer those hard questions. I want to make a, a difference more on a global level, not just one family at a time. And well, hopefully we're doing this on this episode today. <laughs> so there's this dynamic and we learn about it from the Torah with Yaakov and his children, he favored one of his children and that created dynamics. And I know I grew up with, there's no favorite child. Like it was a, it was, it was a statement. And then later on, when you grow up, you're like, but I could see my parents naturally connect with one sibling over, not over another, but could even be a sibling-in-law. You feel there's a spark that you don't see or an interest or natural conversation. So I don't want to deny that it doesn't exist because it exists. There's a personality click that happens between some people yes. and there's one. Sometimes it's lacking. You don't get to choose the personalities of your children or your own. <laughs> so talk to me about favorite child and the contrast or siblings picking up on it. How do you handle this dynamic when you feel a pull toward one child more than to another? Some of it is, again, in the world of the subconscious, we just, like you said, you feel that alignment, you feel that alive factor, you know, and sometimes you look at a kid and they remind you of the negative traits in your spouse or in one of your parents or a grandparent or some random uncle. And, and that's conscious. That's like, right. Like, oh my goodness. Right. And it's, some of it is nonverbal. Some of it is verbal, how we deal with it. Some of it is cues, the, the nonverbal cues, like the, the facial cues, you know, like winking in your eyes or going like, right. Or, and, and your kids pick up on this. Yeah. And, and the other thing is if you're the favorite child, there's more tolerance. There's more rationalizing somehow in our heads that, it wasn't that bad what they did, you know, it's interesting. The kid gets more favors. And again, there are two levels. There's always the subconscious. There's always the conscious. But I think in terms of us as parents, we have to really be honest with ourselves and really, really look at each child and see what about them is making us love them more or what about them is making us really despise a part of who they are. Because if you don't do your work, the child will pick up on that. And that, by the way, that can be the source of a lot of issues that are looking like something else completely. But on a baseline level, it's the parent-child connection that's amiss. And I always like to say that parenting is a Migos factory. That's it. So do you say that with enough therapy or support, parents can overcome that dislike or dysfunction, lack of connection in a relationship? Yeah. I think when people talk about therapy, there's different kinds of therapy modalities and talk therapy may not actually work. You can talk until you have no words left, but then when you see the kid and you're annoyed at your spouse or you're feeling down and out, automatically it's coming from your kishkas, like we like to say. And what I find is I look at that as a trauma, through a trauma lens. 
When you look at it through a trauma lens, then we treat it as something that requires trauma treatment. And if we can heal that wound, then we can replace it with what I like to call a future template. You put another sticker on the package, you wrap it up differently, and now you have a clearer lens to see, well, how do I want to see this? What challenges can I foresee happening? And how do I want to deal with this? My favorite way to help these kind of issues is through EMDR, which changed the way I did therapy when I got trained 10 years ago. So how does EMDR work? So EMDR basically is based on sleep science. I'm I'm doing a really oversimplification right now. But when Hashem created us, he created us with an internal mechanism to allow us to process stuff. Because if all of us would walk around carrying the entirety of our experiences, every single thing that happened every day, our brains would explode. So when we go to sleep, there are four periods of sleep. The part where you kind of get sleepy, the light sleep, the dark, the not darkest sleep, the deeper sleep, and then REM sleep. And REM sleep happens three to four times a night. And it stands for rapid eye movement. And when your eyes blink rapidly during that period of sleep, you process all the day's events. What happens is when trauma happens, and I will loosely define trauma as anything that sort of is maladaptive, bullying could be a trauma, just the same way as what we call developmental trauma, where you've had countless amounts of different things that have happened being raised by parents who didn't connect with you, didn't bond with you properly, a terrible divorce situation. And it's all like a tight rubber ball mix. And it's hard to tease apart. That's one kind of trauma. Yet bullying that leads you to not want to leave your house or go to school is also a trauma. So when you go through something and it blocks you from moving forward, that in effect is your brain has not been able to store that information. And that's the the basis of EMDR. The theory is that your amygdala, the part of your brain that is supposed to be calm, right? What it's doing is every time it sees a reminder of the trauma, it fires and it lets you know, oh, that's a bad thing. The world is an unsafe place. That person's unsafe. This is this, something bad is going to happen to me because of that. Or I never get it right. All of us have these negative beliefs. So when a trauma happens, we form negative beliefs in our brain. That's the pus around the splinter. And the longer you live, the more experiences you have that prove to you that the world indeed is a bad place. If that's your experience, that's the example I'm using. So what EMDR does is uses that EMDR uses the eye movements. It's an eight-phase model. It's mostly well-known because the eye movements, which are unusual, or bilateral movements, which is right, left, right, left, right, left, to activate that healing mechanism and help your brain process things that are maladaptively stored in your brain. It's based on brain science and sleep science. So once your brain processes it, then you're not firing your negative beliefs at the situation. And once that's cleared out, your brain is looking 
at adaptive resolutions. It's looking for good. We're all wired for good things. So I find that in combination with traditional talk therapy, play therapy, any kind of therapy, because there's somatic healing, there's IFS, internal family systems, there's dialectical behavioral therapy. There's so many therapies out there that are wonderful. But this one is the one for me and for many other people, which has helped both myself and my clients find real healing. Wow. So they have to sleep with you? No. I mean, <laughs> they no, come into the office walk. and fall asleep. That's <laughs> that what I meant is. to say. <laughs> no, they do not have to sleep. They It's based on sleep science. Yeah. How does it work? So how it works is someone is sitting in front of me. The 10 years ago, I was going like when I came to the eye movement part. I was asking them to think about the part that bothered them. Do not try this on your own because I'm not I'm not sharing everything. I'm I'm giving you what people typically think of. And I would go like this and they would follow my hand with their eyes. Horizontal line. Right, exactly. Now I have a machine. It's called an audio tax scan. I have heard people do this at home. So do not do this. It can be really bad for your mental health if you do not go to someone who's certified in doing this. It's a really powerful treatment. And we're going to, it's like going, the way I think about it is that like you're going on a train ride. So your trauma, you've got to have the trauma part. You get onto the platform or in the subway, you get on the subway car. That's where you begin. And the eye movements is that train ride till point, till the first stop. So it's like a hypnosis. There is a hypnotic element in it, but no one's going into hypnosis, but we're using the eye movements. We're using the thought. We're using a combination of CBT. There's different elements that are in there. And it's really cool. Brain science. I love it. Very cool. And it works, which is, you know, in the beginning of my career, I was like, I didn't have the tools. Like, I want to help you. But when you came and you had such a big problem, I was like, I can't reassure you that if you stay the course, you will get help. Now I know I could. So the next question I find interesting, and I actually want to dedicate an entire episode on the dynamics of naming children and what goes into it. But can naming a child after someone the parent had issues with or name their child out of a feeling of obligation, can that naming affect the love one feels toward a child? You ask the tough questions. Now we discussed this, right? I said, throw them at me. (laughs) You know, the thing of the matter is, is that especially in the community I live, I don't know about your community. It's sort of like the mother gets a turn with one child. That's her family name. Then the father gets a turn with the next child. They go back and forth every now and then there's somebody that passes away and it's like, well, we really, we want to mix up that order and that can get kind of complicated. The in-laws can get involved, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, if you have a negative feeling towards a name, what do you think is going to happen when you hear that name 50,000 times in the next two years? And I'm not talking about in a lifetime. Let's, Let's just be honest. But I know so many people who name that name and they had, you know, that difficult relationship with that parent or but it's a parent you name after your parent. Yeah. Yeah. And I I just had this conversation, you know, over Hanukkah, there was so many people we interacted with 
and this conversation actually came up. And for me, the only answer from a therapist perspective and 20 years of practice here, so I've seen a lot and I've lived life too, right? Is that every name has a source. So the name actually didn't begin with the person that you despised or that you had that complex relationship with. Again, it, it is a trauma to name somebody out of obligation, you know, after someone. It is, it takes people and it twists them inside and it's something you got to work through and it's a mindset piece. And, but in the end, there comes a time sometimes when you can't work through that mindset. Don't just let it simmer. You can't let this ride because the child, again, will feel it. It will come through in some way, shape or form. So if you know you're about to name your kid after someone you didn't like so much, maybe start therapy. Dead help. Now let's move to the child's perspective. Let's say a child grows up and feels once they are grown enough to start to reflect on all the ways parents <laughs> mess them up and they feel like there was emotional resentment or disconnect or some sort of pettiness that they didn't experience happening to their siblings. Is there a way back to reconnect? Is there a way to heal? Yeah, it's a tall order and it's a, it's a big question. So I'm just going to try to because then the cycle apart. continues and they don't want to name after that parent. I mean, hopefully you don't need to ever name after a parent, but yeah, some yeah. kids have a big age to gap yeah. with their parents. Uh, and yes. So when people go through a hard time, I just want to say you need to address it. And I know people say that therapists always think the answer is therapy. So I'm going to bust that myth because the answer is not always therapy. But we're talking about very complicated issues right now. So number one, I think the biggest thing I want to say to people who have gone through a difficult childhood is you you need to build a life worth living. And it's when you're going through a hard place in your mind that can feel overwhelming. But in, in the long run, do one thing a day to build a life worth living. Something for yourself, something that honors you, for you, not for the chaos, not for the crazies, not for everything that went wrong, but work towards charting a life forward. And I think that's very important in terms of mindset, because if you actually take those steps, then one thing today may not add up to a big deal. But I always like to say this. One plus one equals two. And at the end of the week, one plus one multiplies. And one plus one multiplies after 30 days, imagine after a year. So you need to be focused on one thing a day that can move the needle forth. Can you give some examples? Okay, I'm going to, we're talking to parents here, right? Well, parents are young adults. Young adults. Okay. Both. Good. So do one thing a day that makes you feel happy. So if you enjoy doing puzzles, for example, spend a half hour a day working on a puzzle. And then when you have that 5,000 piece puzzle done, you accomplished something big. You did something. It's it's the accumulation of all these things. Oh, so it could be anything. It doesn't have to be. It could be anything. 
Yeah, it doesn't have to be an academic thing or a fixing a relationship thing. But let's, so that's on the hobby side. Do one hobby a day. On the fixing relationship thing, do one thing a day, whether it's speaking to your inner child and saying you spending 10 minutes with yourself and really talking to the part of you that was wounded and making that something you do every day. Not ignoring it, not shutting it down, because in these internal conversations, and we all have them, whatever words we use, we all have conversations with ourselves. Healing does take place. Mindset shifts. We decide, well, do I want to live my life that way? Do I want to do things differently? Give yourself the gift of spending some time with yourself every day and maybe journaling. That's, that doesn't cost money. And I find journaling really helpful. Now it's a pain in the neck. Let's be honest. During COVID, I did journaling to help myself. And the minute I felt better, guess what? Stopped. Stop. <laughs> Need to pick it up again. It's, it's a good, uh, it's for some, it's a hobby. And for some, it's really building. It's your story. You can also do one thing a day to create the life you want by making one phone call a day that will make you feel positive. So it may be one phone call to say, hey, I really want to open that conversation. I want to talk about what went on when I was younger. It may be a call to an aunt or an uncle that was really a support, like a second mother. It may be a call to to somebody who you hadn't spoken in 20 years. But this cumulative sum of one little action a day can really make your life that much better. So back to our topic of parents who who hate or despise something or the complete existence of their children or child. Do you have an example of somebody or a few people, just something you can paint a picture for us? Sure. And and have they achieved success? What did that look like? I don't like sharing client stories, so it's going to be I'm combinations, ages, combinations. I'm very careful about that. So let's say, for example, you're a mother, you've got seven kids, and your seven-year-old, your sandwich child, that was the mistake child, and and people do say that, and it's it's really like it hurts. And for some reason, out of the whole family, this kid gives you attitude. She gives you attitude when she wakes up in the morning. When she comes home, she's always in your face. She she takes up way more space than any of the other children. And you want to take the kid and just go, there's the window, there's the door, there's the, right? And as I'm talking to the, the parent and doing this assessment, I find out that the parent wasn't ready to have the child. And I suggest to the parent, because now I have to tread gently. Is it always connected to the parent wasn't ready to have a child or can it actually be a personality? No, it's not always. It can also be a personality. When a parent says that they weren't ready to have a child, I always need to explore that. And as much as I talk about the subconscious, I'm very practical, but it's underneath. I can't help it. NYU is all about psychodynamic training, and so it informs my practice. We really explore it, and it's like, I asked the mother, how does it impact? 
your relationship with your child. Do you think it has anything to do with this? So if she says no, I'll leave it. If she says yes, I'll explore it. And I'll ask, how does it play itself out? I used to do non-directive play therapy, which is like the mother sits outside, we talk for 10 minutes, the kid plays, and it's a wonderful therapy. I've changed in the past 10 years where I use more of a family systems model because I believe that if you have a lot of children, you're probably not getting one-on-one with your child that often. So if you're actually coming to therapy, unless there's a reason for you to be outside, I would like the child to bond with the parent instead of bonding with me or both of us, because that relationship should be solidified and actually made better and stronger. So we play together and then I I see it in front of me. That's my training. And there are projective assessments that I can do with art and in sand tray. And then I'll meet with the parent every few weeks and I'll say, this is what I noticed. And sometimes the parent will say, I picked up on that too. Can you give me an example? So let's say one projective exercise we do, and this is a great story actually, because I do this telecourse, Playful Parenting, and now I filmed it and it's online. But I got a phone call one day about three months ago, and I have no idea who the person is. I did return the call. And uh, instead of my secretary, I was like, I'll handle this one. And the woman said, I think that you were my therapist when I was a kid. And she said, I remember this and this exercise you did. It was an art exercise where I had the parent sit. They both picked one marker, different marker, and they had to draw anything, take turns without talking. And in this exercise, you really, and again, don't do it at home. You have to know how this works. Draining the eye that makes it work. So let's say they both decided to draw a house. So the house can be drawn, like we're split right now on the screen. Some parents, when they do this exercise, the art stays on one side and the mother stays on that side. Well, that's distance. They're not meeting. Some it's enmeshed where they're toppling over each other and it's really chaotic. They're drawing on the same piece of paper. Right, exactly. But they're drawing with different markers. So This woman said, I think it was you, but you said to my mother, you said, well, this was, it was really nice. You guys did a very nice job here, but I'm, I think we need to do some work on the connection between the two of you. And the message she left was my mother never returned because I wasn't the problem anymore. And she said, when I saw your name in the paper, I was determined to take your course because I knew that you got it. I knew that you knew something was wrong. So the child came to you because her mother was helped by you and it wasn't her fault anymore. It was the mother. Exactly. Exactly. So it all came around and this was very interesting to me. So what was going on for the mother? Was it a personality disorder? Was it a dislike to the child because of the early childhood or anything that happened when the child was conceived? I don't remember. That was a very long time ago. But it was really a great moment for me because you see what's going on in the relationship, in the play. And then I talk to the parent and I coach them and I say, look, you may want to do this and this. You may want to give your kid extra attention. You may want to take five minutes throughout the day in one minute increments. Give the kid a compliment. Play a silly game. 
while you play, we do the bunny hop while you're going into bed instead of saying, get into bed. And relationships shift when parents get a little tweaking. That sometimes can take care of the problem. For other people, it's that ingrained and it's like they can't get over it. And then we need to process it like a trauma because it is a trauma to give birth to a child that you weren't ready to give birth to. What would you say the line is between just regular parenting and frustrations and something mm-hmm. that is a little bit more severe and has trauma and oh, yes. someone should look out for. I love that question. So I think that we can only be good enough parents. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. And I raise my hand. I don't know about you. <laughs> no. I wasn't a perfect parent. Raising my hand as well. I can't, I can't own up to that. I was a good enough parent and I was a really fun parent at times. And at times I was a really stressed out parent and I really, really tried very hard. But the one thing because of my profession is that my husband and I really, really believe in the power of play and connection. And we made a huge, huge emphasis to play with our kids every day, whether it was a board game, whether it was going outside and, and I don't know, throwing candies on the side. We live on a mountain. So we throw candies and Shabbos and ices over the side of the mountain. All the neighbors would come and swoop down the mountain and we play carnival games on our driveway. We, we really worked very hard to put fun into our lives to counterbalance the challenges of raising children. Because look, I work part-time. I can't even imagine parents that work full-time, what it's like. And then you've got your own stuff to deal with. Let's be real. So you're not always going to be in that perfect, amazing framework. But really bad parenting and trauma parenting is when things are unglued and upside down. Children aren't, children don't have their laundry. They're wearing shoes that are torn. I mean, that's neglect. And there's also emotional neglect where Children can't talk about their feelings. They get stuffed down. The minute they open their mouth, you're like, you're at it again? You have something to say about it? I'll give you something to cry about if you cry. And and there are stories. There are really, really very sad stories about parents that actually should not be parents. And because I don't play God, I just don't. It's hard to say that. But you're not ready to be a parent. Don't take on pressure. Get help until you are ready to be a parent. The kids don't deserve it. Do you think we need more recognition from a community standpoint to recognize that not everyone who is set up on a shidduch date is immediately ready to be a parent? You know, with the amount of quick divorces mm-hmm. and aguna situations. There's a rising divorce rate. It's really sad. It's something I see often and parents fighting in court is just the the past 10 years has just been, it's horrific to the point where I now, I had one time where I was in court enough times that you can, I will not work with your child unless you sign a paper and it's notarized that you will not take me to court. So if you need to have the therapist dragged into court into your bloody battle, you're going to have to find a forensic therapist if you if you want me to work with your kid and that was me having to do self-care 
just to see children being ripped apart. So I do think it's being acknowledged on a baseline level. I Every now and then I hear of a couple who, let's say there was anxiety or there was depression and the college teacher and the Hassan teacher will talk and they'll say, well, you know what? They should start off on birth control for the first six months and let them, let's just let the sea itself ride. And then let's put the getting pregnant into the story. But it's not something that's common. And I think it's really going to be hard to make that change because the whole idea of marriage and having children is, wasn't that the purpose of getting married? It's a hard place to be in. So I think every individual, like if you, this is hard for you, if you know that you've got stuff to work out, don't throw a pregnancy and a baby into the mix (laughs) until, hello. And I'd like to just acknowledge that. And I make, I laugh at myself how I make these disclaimers on most episodes, but we want to acknowledge the pain and hardship that people who do want to have children so badly that their pain can coexist at the same time as the pain of a parent who is dealing with a very troublesome connection issue with a child and feeling like there's saying that because it just, unfortunately, I just, uh, one of my dear friends had a stillborn eight months pregnant and first baby, just really, really sad, really just, yeah. Many moms, most moms, I say we make great moms, great dads. We all have the right, the right place in our heart most of the time, but, and it needs to be acknowledged that there's, just as much pain on the other side and someone listening to it who's trying to get pregnant could be like, how can you be so callous? So I appreciate you saying that. I think we covered everything we wanted to, at least on this episode. Yeah. You asked me one more question. I mean, yes, a bunch, but you asked what tools I give parents. So if you want to Take a minute, I'll throw that in there. Let's close off with that. What tools would you give parents? I give the same tools to parents and kids. EMDR inspired. I want everybody to really find a safe place that they have in this world. Okay, so it can be your bed. It can be Israel. It could be the Miami experience, the beach. That's my self-care right there. It can be watching sunset. It can be swimming, but you need to have a place where when everything goes under and you're feeling overwhelmed, you need to have a place where you find safety. You also need to have things that make you happy. And it shouldn't be technology. It shouldn't be scrolling on Instagram. Real things, real people things. You also have to have things that you're proud of in life. Thank you for saying that. Well, what's an example? could be proud of i see the guitars the guitars well i know what i'm proud of i mean i'm proud of this podcast i'm proud of my business so many different things but for anyone who's starting out in life or feels like they're being a mom is the only thing they do and they feel unfulfilled because their life is talking on a two-year-old level all day sometimes we have to dig deep sometimes we have to go to the past and say i'm proud of the marks i got 
When I was in school, I really put forth the effort. So I know I actually have it in me if the right setting was put together where I can succeed. Sometimes it's, I'm proud of the fact that I cook good food. I'm proud of the fact that I get in the shower every day and <laughs> I put on my, my lipstick. Or I'm proud that I'm a good wife. I'm a good sister. I'm a good daughter. I'm a good mother. If you break it down, if you sat with yourself for 10 minutes and all you did was have to write what you're proud of, do you think you'd come up with more than five things? And was there anything else? So we have the safety What Mm -hmm. makes you happy? What are you proud of? I think the tips I give parents is just to be playful. Don't make life too serious. COVID has taught us that one. But life is serious enough. Life can be hard, but there's also joy. So as a parent, what I want you to think of is to inject playfulness into the time you spend with your children, the time you spend with your spouse, the time you spend doing your thing in the kitchen and watch the, washing the laundry. I mean, it's a stretch sometimes, but if you try, at least you'll have one or two playful moments during a bad day and you'll have lots of happy, playful moments during the good day. Thank you so much, Gelly, for coming on to this show, sharing your time and wisdom with us. Where can people find you? Parenting with Gelly, anywhere online. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so yeah. much. Great chatting with you. Hey, friends, dance. Thanks for sticking around until the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I would love to hear your thoughts. So please do reach out. Please feel free to post in the Francisco Show discussion group on WhatsApp. And next week, come back for an anonymous divorce story from an anonymous from woman. I think it's important to really observe and learn more about the hidden sides of the harder parts of life that some people have no choice but to deal with. On a more exciting note, I am working on a pro and cons Aliyah episode. So if you have ideas or thoughts about that, please do reach out. And I am interested in interviewing in the closet or out of the closet from or former Orthodox members. This includes anything gender-related as well. So have a great week and see you next time. Bye.